appreciate the fact this is extremely heavy rain, extremely heavy traffic, uh, really difficulties out there. So if you will be just a little patient, I'd like to get maybe a couple of the people here that are that are coming. I know they will be here. Uh, and I will uh, fill the time by giving you just a little, a little background info, if you don't mind. Uh, we're holding this press conference because we have something to say. Uh, and, and as it happens, this happens, follows the fifth uh, X conference, which is paradigm research group produces in the Washington area at Gaithersburg Hilton and has since 2004 where speakers are brought in from all over the world to address the exopolitical political implications of the OPLT phenomenon which is a worldwide phenomenon that's been going on for two years and is well, you know, obviously everyone talks about when you say the phenomenon. Um, the PRG is an advocacy organization that was set up in 1996 uh, for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to resolve politically this issue by getting the United States government to end a policy uh, of withholding information and, in fact, withholding the acknowledgement of the reality of this issue from the American people and, by extension, other governments in the first world, aligned with the U.S. doing the same. And after 13 years, uh, it has had some success. Many other organizations have joined in. Uh, a world movement, relatively substantial worldwide movement, is, is, is forming called the Disclosure Movement, uh, certainly assisted by the internet, which is phenomenal in its ability to network political issues and advocacy. Uh, not only words, but as you know, video now, so that any matter can be uh, uh, distributed. And, uh, and, and one can align with it very easily. And this even includes some of the uh, phenomenally growing entities like Facebook, where PRG has two groups now, and we'll have a main group shortly. Uh, some of these groups on Facebook have hundreds of thousands of members that are in direct communication. So all of this uh, is part of a new emerging political activism that makes it possible to address any issue, no matter how radioactive, right? So that perhaps in the future there will be no such thing as the third rail of American politics, which is essentially just an excuse for people not to cover it. Oh, it's the third rail, so we won't cover it. Pick one. This is the third rail this year. Next year it's something else. Well, for a very long time, Social Security was the third rail of American politics, which is frankly an infantile and ridiculous way to think about the issue, and so it wasn't dealt with. Well, I can assure you. There is a third rail and has been of American politics, and that is the UFO ET question. It is many magnitudes more radioactive than Social Security ever dreamed to be. And that issue, of course, is what we're addressing today. All right, now, I'm going to put some question here. Is Cheryl Jones here? Okay, all right. Is Richard, oh, okay, there is Nick Pope here. Yes, Nick, very sorry how things worked out this morning. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, and I'm glad that you've now become familiar with Washington's very fine metro system. <laughs> Almost as good as London's very fine metro system. All right. Milton Torres is here. The speaker is here. 
All right, I think we're going to get underway. This press conference will not last past 11. In fact, it may end before 11. All right, we're going to move very tightly. Uh, first, uh, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, Apollo 14 astronaut, will speak to you for a few minutes. And then immediately following that, Major Milton Torres, U.S. Air Force retired, will speak to you for a few minutes. And then you may ask questions of Dr. Torres and Dr. Mitchell. After appropriate amount of questions, then Nick Hope, uh, a former senior executive with the Ministry of Defense in, in, in the UK, will speak to you for a, a few minutes. Uh, and one moment. Question, then Richard Dolan will speak briefly about announcement about his second book, very important book, following up his first very important book. And then Alfred Weber will speak briefly regarding a UN initiative that is making headway, all right, and take um, a few questions. And then Dr. Roger Lear will make a presentation regarding significant breakthrough in physical evidence research, obviously related to this issue. And then he will take questions and we will end. We will not go past 11 a.m. Now, the other thing I would, excuse me, would like to mention is that all of the speakers, including Dr. Mitchell, Dr. Torres, and Pope, and the others are definitely available for further interviews after the press conference is over. We'll be happy to talk with anybody at that time. Um, so with that, I'm going to move on. One second. to the podium, uh, uh, a distinguished American, a, a man who uh, is, in fact, someone who has the right stuff, which includes uh, a doctorate in aeronautics and astronautics from MIT, selection to the NASA Apollo program, selection to a NASA Apollo program moon mission, selection to a NASA Apollo moon mission egress, from the capsule on the moon, uh, returning to, uh, to our world to write several books, found the Institute of Medical Sciences, develop a number of scientific exploration uh, uh, initiatives, a man who's received far more awards than I could possibly list here, but which do include the Presidential Medal of Freedom nomination uh, for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize and a number of honorary doctorates. Um, and uh, he has some things to say to you this morning. I would ask him to come forward now, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you very much for being here. My story with regard to the disclosure process is very simple. Uh, I grew up in Roswell, New Mexico the site of the first 
UFO crash, the alleged UFO crash. And my story is as a result of growing up there, I was a senior in high school, uh, just going into the, my, high, my senior year in 1947, when uh, on one day the Roswell Record announced that an alien craft had crashed, and the next day uh, changed that story and said no, the Air Force said that was a weather balloon. And uh, since I was on my way to college and more interested in those things, I didn't pay much attention to it at that point in time. However, my uh, family was in the agribusiness. My grandfather was a cattle buyer and sold ranchers and to the ranchers in the area, knew everybody in the area, and, uh, the Pecos Valley and beyond, sold cattle into uh, Arizona, western Texas. <coughs> and was affectionately known as Bull Mitchell in the, those parts. And so it was not unsurprising to me later on that the lore of the area of our friends and the uh, people in Roswell, including the Sheriff's Department, and a military friend of ours, a major, who was also turned out to be uh, a friend of Jesse Marcel, who was the first Air Force officer on the site of the crash. <clears throat> and this uh, Air Force officer was in administration. He was not really involved, but he, he eventually told me his story, and that's how I became involved. So after my Apollo flight, I, I did very little. I didn't do nothing but the lore of the region uh, up until that point. But after my Apollo flight, when I was back in the area and visiting relatives and friends, some of the people in the uh, area who had been involved, what I call the old timers, who were involved in the 1940s, 1947, uh, subsequent with the Roswell crash, and uh, people like in the Sheriff's Department who had been to the crash site and were supervising traffic. Uh, my friend and friend of our family, the Major, who was an office mate of uh, in the administrative function at Walker Air Force Base. These folks, uh, because they had been shushed and told not to talk about their experience by military authority in those days, and on dire consequence if they did, felt that in here in the 70s, many, many years later, um, that they didn't want to go to the grave with their story. They wanted to tell somebody reliable. And being a local boy, and having been to the moon, they considered me reliable enough to whisper in my ear their particular story and their association with uh, the Roswell crash, including the family of the undertaker who provided coffins uh, for the uh, alleged vi alien victims, and others on site who had been involved or knew the story. And of course, eventually I ran into Jesse Marcel Jr., the son of uh, Jesse Marcel, who was the first military officer on the site, and knew his story, and knew his story well, and we became friends in later years in this disclosure movement. And uh, at some point, about 10 years ago, and I can't remember what date it was right now, when the disclosure movement was under, going strongly, I came here to Washington with a Navy commander by the name of Will Miller, and Dr. Stephen Greer, 
and we were able to get an appointment at the Pentagon to talk about what we knew, or what we allegedly knew, what we thought we knew, and went and told our story. And uh, the powers that be at the Intelligence Committee of the Joint Chiefs of Staff listened to our story and said, the uh, Admiral said, well, I don't know that story. I don't know that that's true, but I will find out. So we departed, went on our way, and subsequently learned through uh, Dr. Greer and through Will Miller and that uh, those stories had been confirmed and that the Admiral had been denied access when he tried to get into the inner workings of that process. And uh, we had some confirmation of, of that although that Admiral now denies the fact that uh, this is a fact. So my story is essentially that I don't have no first-hand experience with the ET effort, except the fact that I know all of these research people that you'll hear from today, and those some who are not here today, who have spent a long amount of their lives and time <coughs> doing research into the alien visitation, UFO crashes and so forth. And I urge that those who are doubtful read the books, read the lore, and start to understand what has really been going on, because there is no doubt we are being visited. And as a person who is a part of the first generation of being the spacefarer of our civilization and having gone to the moon, and realizing that I do and many of us do now, that have seen the Hubble pictures in space, the universe that we live in is much more wondrous, exciting, complex, and far-reaching than we were ever able to know up to this point in time. And uh, the fact we have wondered, were we alone in the universe forever, only in our period do we really have evidence, no, we're not alone. We are just one planet with intelligent life on it, and probably it is time, now that we are spacefarers on our planet, that we get active because we're really universal beings. And in the long stretch of things, if we think about it in the longest possible range, we realize, and I realize this from my studies in astronomy and astrophysics, our sun will burn out in due course, and we have to be off this planet if our species is to survive. So anybody, any species, any planet that is on around the mainstream star like ours is, only has a finite amount of time on that star before it burns out. And so our destiny, in my opinion, and we might as well get started with it, is become a part of the planetary community of nations, of, of planets, just like uh, when we were much newer on this planet, and we found tribes over in the next valley or across the next mountain, and we started forming communities then and reaching out beyond ourselves. At this point in human history on this planet, we're now starting and ready should be to reach out beyond our planet and beyond our solar system to find out what is really going on out there. And the 20th and 21st century that we now live in, the beginning of the, the Industrial Revolution really didn't take off until the 19th century. 
And I tell the story to some of my younger audiences, particularly in school, that my great-grandparents went across from South Georgia to West Texas in a covered wagon at the end of the Civil War in the 1870s. My family, my father's generation, was involved with going off a planet in aircraft. And less than 100 years later, I went to the moon. So from covered wagons to going to the moon in less than 100 years is the history of the development of our civilization in not our lifetime, but a couple of generations. And so it's time to start thinking in those terms. And particularly since now, in the 20th and 21st century, we suddenly find that due to our expertise and our genius in science and technology, we have exploded our population from under 2 million at the beginning of the 20th century to over 6.5 billion at this point. And our consumption patterns are clearly indicating that we are utilizing our non-renewable resources at an unacceptable rate, a non-sustainable rate. So we've got a lot of thinking to do about what being an advanced civilization really means. But let's put all that aside for a moment because we're here to talk about disclosure. And what I am suggesting is it is now time to put away this embargo of truth about the avian presence. And I call upon our government to open up like other governments have, and you will hear about that this morning like the Belgians have, the French have, the Brazilians have, the Argentines, the Mexicans have all released their files. It's about time now that we do the same thing and become a part of this planetary community that is now trying to take our proper role as space-faring civilization. Thank you very much for your time. Comments, Dr. Milton Torres. Dr. Torres? All right. A little slow. By the way, Dr. Torres and Dr. Mitchell about a year and a half apart. As a matter of fact, we never met until today, uh, I, this session. Uh, uh, when he launched, I was there. I was the chief of range controller at the time for Cape Kennedy. It's amazing how you work your way up. And he went to the moon. I just sat there and watched him. Uh, I'm, I'm going to make a real brief one on my biology, on my biograph, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, my father was born in Key West in 1888. He went north to New York to make his fortune, whatever it was. Well, he was getting kind of old. And he decided, well, I want to go back home to Florida. So. He took me back in 1950 to Florida, and there I stayed until the Korean War. When the Korean broke up, War broke out, I said, geez, I want to fly. I, I, don't want, I don't want to go into the Army. I don't like laying mud. So, <clears throat> so I went to the Air Force and said, sign me up, and they did. I didn't know that I was the luckiest guy in the world. When I was in the Air Force, they said, would you like to be a pilot? Boy, the greatest thing. I had no college, I had nothing. And I volunteered, and lo and behold, I, I was in the top of my class, not the very top, but you know, 
at number 10 or something like that. But we would have our choice of airplanes when we, when we graduated from flight training. And I picked a fighter. I wanted the F-86F to go to Korea and shoot down some MiGs. I mean, that, that's the way it was in those days. They disappointed me in one sense. They gave me an F-86, but not an F. They gave me the D model. The D model was a new all-weather version so that we could have somebody launch uh, for, on alert to go after the bad guys, whoever they may be coming in. They, they equipped us with nice radar sets so we could tell everything from, from in, uh, on an intercept. And my first assignment out of F-86D school was RM Station Manston. Don't forget it, it's the oldest base in England, in the RAF. <clears throat> I carry it right here. Bottom line. We finally became combat ready. We went down to Tripoli, uh, Wheelers Air Force Base, fired rocketry. So we got pretty damn good at shooting down whatever it is that's going to come and get us. So they sent us back <coughs> to, uh, to England and we became combat ready, which meant we, we were going to share with the RAF the defense of Britain during the Cold War years. The, the reason they sent the F-86 over there is because none of you have to fly weather like, like they have in England, but they have it from the ground up. It's infinity, and it's a solid. It's like what they call a piece of fog. I, can't, I, couldn't, I had a Buick at the time. I couldn't see my hood ornament most of the time because it was just that, that bad. Anyway, we, they were selected us to sit alert, and we, we sat alert. We, we were sitting on the end of the runway, and mind you, the, the runway in, in, at Manson. Manson was a recovery base for all the bombers in World War II. Uh, when they got shot up, and they got shot up, they brought them, and Manson was the very first place they see in England, because it's just north of Dover on the Thames Estuary, and it's just a huge runway, which is 750 feet wide. You don't find those anymore. <coughs> And uh, that, that, that was such a wide runway, you could take a whole squadron off at the same time that, for takeoff, which we didn't do. But uh, we, we went off two at a time, usually. But the bottom line was, uh, we're sitting alert, and sure enough, the klaxon goes off, and we're scrambled. And we had a, a kind of a deal amongst the fighter pilots. The first one to the, air, uh, to the runway is the lead. I elected to be the person I got there. And then when, he got, when I got there and took off, they scrambled me, they said, heading in 020, and they gave us the frequency of DCI and said, contact DCI when you're airborne. I did. And when I did, and mind you, I was only 25 years old. Uh, I was, you know, a kid, so to speak. But when, they call, when I talked to the DCI, we were gonna warn you, we're gonna have a hot mission you'll have to fire all your rockets. Select 24, that's, what we, that's all the rockets we had, 24. And I, boy, did that ever scare the hell out of me. Anyway, I reached down, I selected the 24 rockets, like they said, and then I said, you know, this is serious. Uh, I, I'm gonna go through the authentication procedure. Please give me the authentication code. Because when I was USAF on an RAF mission, 
to shoot down whatever it was I was going to go after. So they gave me the correct authentication, which we had a top secret piece of paper with a matrix on it. So it was at the, depending on the time and where you were, you, you pick, go down and you get three letters, A, B, C, and they come back X, Y, Z, or whatever it was. Because I sure don't remember, I was so spooked. At any rate, that meant it was for real. I was an afterburner and I said, um, I'd like to come out of afterburner. They said, no, go gate, stay gate. That was the symbol for going in the afterburner because we want you to get this guy. He's been orbiting Ipswich and he was in that area and we're going to get you there. It took us out over England, over France, I'm sorry, and it turned us back. Uh, the firing heading was somewhere around uh, 350, something like that. But that's not important. What's important is we were in the soup, and I mean, it was solid. It was to 32,000 feet, and we never saw each other. I had my wingman with me until, until we broke off, and he went in trail with me. And if you ask me who my wingman is, I don't remember his name. He was a new guy in the squadron, and that was the end of that. But anyway, on the way up, we, we, they were positioning us to make this intercept on this orbiting vehicle. Apparently, uh, somebody made a decision to shoot him down before I was launched. I didn't know that, but he, they finally gave us our final lecture. We went in there and they said, be advised, you'll have a bogey of 30 degrees at 15 miles uh, on the port side. And sure enough, when I started painting it, I, I got this blob. It was not a blip, it was a blob. It was about the size you get of an aircraft carrier in the North Sea when, when you painted them. This was humongous for, for me. It was so strong that it literally I didn't have to do anything to lock on except get the range gate marker near the, where the blip was. And boy, when it did, it just automatically, the lights went out, everything, uh, and, and you had firing information already. And it was one of those things that just was a, a storybook um, fight. So I was going in, and at uh, 20 seconds to go, we on the lock-on, we start our final penetration fire. Now, the, the information we get from the radar says, this guy was going fast at this time. And he was going uh, about maybe 100 knots faster than I was. And I was at Mark 0.92, which was all the F-86D could do. It's not like the modern jets. But anyway, uh, as I was going in, uh, and I had a strong, good steering information. I was ex expecting what we call uh, the last phase, the phase three, where, where you get a line, all the circles disappear, and you, all you have to do is take a little dot and put it on that line and keep your finger on the then trigger. Well, sure enough, I started getting down there, ready to fire, and the circle started coming down, and the next thing I know, the overtake went from whatever it was, my speed, it was, it was about a thousand knots, something like that. To, and he took off, uh, I, I estimated about 10, uh, Mach 10 uh, in an airplane that to go Mach 10, you know, airplanes will go to Mach 10. Not that any I've ever seen. And this was never made up by a human being. This was something that was totally different. I've never seen, he could do things that I couldn't do. Uh, he could stop and start and keep going and everything else, but he took off, and he took off, and in two sweeps on the ground, he was off their scope. 
He was off my stove sooner than that. But as soon as that happened, the mission was over and I couldn't fire. So on the way down, uh, the uh, GCI controller says, contact us on the landline. We have very important information for you. I said, Roger. And I did that. I recovered at Manston. The weather was still bad. It was still night. And I had uh, an entire mission with night weather, which was jewel time on your, on your form five. Anyway, I got down, got to the phone, called the landline, and they said, this is a top secret mission. I don't know why, but that's what it was. And it says, you're not to talk about it. We're going to send someone down from London uh, to talk to you and debrief you tomorrow. I said, yes, sir. Thank you. And I hung up. <coughs> sure enough, the next day, a spook. They you know what a spook is. A spook is some guy from Cloak and Dagger who wants to debrief you on something. I don't know what the hell it was. You know, what am I going to tell him? So anyway, he, he says, I want you to know this is a top secret mission. You're not allowed to tell your commander or anyone else uh, anything about this or we will take your wings away. Uh, you know, when you're 25 years old and you want to start flying, you, you don't want to hear that. So I put a zipper on my mouth and that was the end of that. I could never talk about it again until next Pope's people from the Ministry of Defense. They call it MOD, M-O-D, like our D-O-D, uh, exposed all their, their data uh, on October 21st. I remember because I got a warning from a friend of mine in England that I, I would be exposed <coughs> on my mission uh, on October 21st. Sure enough, the phone started ringing. It rang for four days, nonstop. This is the London Times, this is so-and-so, ABC, NBC, name it, this is CNN, and so on. Anyway, make a long story short, I am now able to talk about my experience that I just told you about. Uh, I know nothing about it. I held that from my father, who, who was 121 years old, if he was still alive. But I never could tell him about that. Anyway. I'm sorry, I'm just a bit, the, the whole recollection. It's such a relief to, to let me know that I can talk about this anymore. Okay. Are you okay? Do you feel okay? Huh? Do you, do you have anything you want to talk about? No, I'm all right. I'm okay. I, I, just, I, I just think my father is. Anyway, disclosure is what we need. There are many more people like me that are running around with secrets that they can't talk about because nobody will release it. And I think we should get together even with the Russians, because I'm sure they know a hell of a lot more about these aliens than we do. But it's a really important thing for us to know about this thing so we can go forward. They have technology that we haven't even dreamt of. I'm sure their propulsion system was something like anti-gravity or something like that, because they could stop on a dime and take off at Mark 10 or greater. It's unbelievable what they can do. So we need to know these things. So the only reason I'm here is to tell you, let's disclose this whenever we can, please. Thank you. Thank you. We also have some very objective, impartial, and biased press here as well. 
All right, now, would any of the media like to ask uh, either of these gentlemen a question at this point? Any of the reporters? Alan? Can you tell us, uh, Dr. Minto, exactly what the locals of Roswell told you to remember to do? The essence was that the Roswell event was an alien threat, that it was uh, not a good plan. That's the essence. What they really told me was their particular, each one of them, had some particular part of it, like the sheriff's deputy was controlling traffic, but heard from what the other people, what was going on. The uh, family of the undertaker told about the ball coffin that were created for the alien body. And my Air Force family friend said, yes, he had heard the same thing from uh, Major Brazil. Uh, and uh, each one of them just told what their portion of the activity was all about. So putting it all together, the sum total was, yes, it was an alien spacecraft. End of the question from the media at this time. Yeah, happy right now. Obviously, the, these gentlemen will be available for further questions afterwards, which I know is customarily what happened. Uh, uh, I have a question about sure. the fellow astronauts uh, talking to you about seeing space, uh, UFOs in space. No, I have talked to all of the astronauts up through the Apollo program. And the only ones that have had UFO experience were in their Air Force careers, where like the, this one and gentleman uh, were vectored to chase, chase a UFO, never quite made it, couldn't quite get them in their sights or whatever. And that was Deke Slayton and Gordon Cooper had his experience that's been well recited about seeing one land at uh, Edwards Air Force Base, seeing the pictures of it, suddenly the pictures disappeared into the vault of Washington and never returned. But uh, the, pe the uh, military people that had UFO experience were in their Air Force careers before the astronaut program. And of course, being a military and Navy pilot myself, the stories among airline pilots and other pilots, they're just all over the place. And we're all told, shut up about it. I never had, never chased one myself, but all my friends that did, where it was all the same thing, don't talk about it. Uh, let me point out that I lied to you earlier when I said we would end no later than 11 a.m. We will go past that because we did get started late and there's so many people here. Uh, sue me. All right, now, I want to make a point. Uh, both of the gentlemen, I mean, the news here today is uh, because this, this gentleman was interviewed back in October. That's not news. So, but the news today is both of these gentlemen are calling on the, obviously, since you want this done now, they're calling on the current administration to do this, the Obama administration, to emphasize the disclosure event to bring the information out and perhaps confirm the extraterrestrial presence. Uh, but they're not alone in that. Uh, if you do a cursory check on the internet, you can easily find that the former head of the transition team for the current president, the former chief of staff to President Clinton, the former advisor to President Clinton, John Podesta, and now the founder and the CEO of the Center for American Progress, has in this room, 2003, and in the room, 2002, called for exactly the same thing. The least of all UFO documents by the United States government. Pretty high level person said that. Uh, but there just wasn't enough press follow-up on that. Why, they didn't really query him, they did not go deeper. Uh, perhaps they will now. Then in 2004, 
a very fine gentleman who is currently the uh, governor of New Mexico, who ran for president, was a high-level and possible vice presidential pick, uh, Bill Richardson, uh, wrote in a foreword to a book published that year in the summer that the Roswell explanation put forward by the government didn't add up, uh, that it didn't make sense, and that we needed to know what happened. And he called for the release of all the records on Roswell, pretty high-level person. The press did not follow up. Uh, there was a question asked of him by Chris Matthews after the Philadelphia debate and the Democratic debates last year, and that was that. Uh, well, we're back, and there will be others who will ask again, will you release these records? Will you release all documents? Will, in fact, you get to the truth of this? All right, so if you would, no, uh, Dr. Mitchell, you'll take your seat. All right, the next person to come up will be Nick Pope, who for many years worked for the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom. He was a senior executive officer and for two years was specifically assigned to investigate UFOs for the Ministry of Defense. I'm not sure that really anybody has had that role here, and certainly the United States government has done nothing in that since 1968 when they said there was nothing to check anymore. Obviously, he's done this quite more recently, so apparently the UK government seems to be a little more uh, diligent about this. Uh, and the reason he is here is because the UK government made a decision right after the French government started releasing all of their files uh, to, to the internet to start releasing the UK files. And they've done it in a time-release fashion, so they're releasing thousands of files, and then they'll wait six months and thousands more. And then each time they do that, it generates a whole news cycle again as various reports come out alluding to events that happened in the news articles about these events all over the UK, uh, generating hundreds and hundreds of articles. This has generated a lot of press in the UK, a lot of activity, there's a lot going on, and, and this gentleman has been in the middle of it all. And so we want him to uh, brief you about that. And so Nick, will you come to the mic, please? Thank you, good morning. Um, I worked for the Ministry of Defence for 21 years, and between 1991 and 1994, I was actually the person responsible for investigating UFO sightings. 95% of them turned out after investigation to be misidentifications of fairly ordinary objects and phenomena. But there were some interesting cases in there, including sightings by police officers, pilots, both commercial and military, uh, UFO sightings tracked on radar. As Steve said, the British government is in the process of releasing its entire archive of UFO files, and one can now go to the Ministry of Defence website, the National Archives website, and see tens of thousands of pages of, of documentation. Um, most of the, fi uh, the files are citing reports, but there are also policy papers, including some classified up to the level secret UK eyes only, uh, now declassified, of course. There have been three batches of files released to date, and it was the last batch of files, uh, pardon me, the um, uh, last but one batch of files that included the report of Major Milton Torres's sighting. 
UFO sightings in Britain continue. Uh, there were twice as many reported to the Ministry of Defence in 2008 as opposed to 2007. Um, cases included an interesting one on 2nd of May last year where a police helicopter had to take evasive action to avoid what the pilot described as a UFO. And again, this report can be read uh, on the website of the Airprox board. Airprox is air proximity, and it's jointly uh, sponsored by the Ministry of Defence and the Civil Aviation Authority, which is the UK equivalent of, of your FAA. Bottom line, from a personal point of view, having worked on, on these files for three years, I don't know what UFOs are. But when one looks at cases such as that of, of Major Torres and many others, because there, there have been others, when one looks at the uh, police helicopter and the pilot having to take evasive action, it's perfectly clear to me, and was clear to a number of my other colleagues, that whatever the true nature of the UFO phenomenon, it raises important defence, national security, and air safety issues, and therefore needs to be something taken seriously and investigated in a proper scientific manner. Thank you. for Nick from the meeting. Do we have a question? Okay. He will be available afterwards. I do have a question myself. Nick? Oh, oh yes, right there. Nick, has there been any I'm not aware of that, but uh, one possible example, we had a very convincing photograph sent to us, uh, which was actually on my office wall for a number of years. And I remember going to discuss that with my opposite number and defence intelligence staff. And whilst there was nothing to work with except the image, obviously by looking, uh, by showing that image to the technical specialists at MOD who, who were responsible for photographic interpretation, there was a hope that we would at least be able to find out something about the aerodynamics and possibly the propulsion system of whatever this thing was, and we didn't know. I have a question. Admit, were there other uh, indications in those files of other incidents where pilots were I can't recall any other shoot-down orders. Of course, there have been a couple of other very famous cases from other uh, countries. Iran in 1976. Um, uh, Peru in, in 1980, there have certainly been cases where commercial airline pilots um, have had very near misses with UFOs. One of the reports in, in the uh, second batch of material uh, involved an aircraft uh, with 57 passengers on board flying um, in, into London and something flashed across uh, at, at a height of about 22,000 feet and the pilot simply had time to say, look out, look out. So the, there are a number of near misses involving military aircraft and commercial pilot. I'm not aware of any other shoot-down orders in the UK, but there may well have been. Uh, there, there may have been some files that, that I missed during my, my tour of duty. Okay, a question, yes? Yes, uh, Mr. Pope, are, what is your current status with MOD, uh, and are you acting on their official behalf in uh, being here? 
No, I left the Ministry of Defence. I, I resigned in 2006, so I'm speaking entirely in a personal capacity. That said, of course, I'm, I'm drawing on declassified material from the MOD's archives. Quick follow-up, then. Do you have a current counterpart at MOD who's at the desk where you were, and they, will they confirm and discuss more of what you're saying about the process of declassification? I do have a counterpart who's still there, but um, any contact with the media would need to be through the MOD's press office. Thank you. No, we didn't. Um, one of the first things that I did was try to establish lines of communication with an opposite number in, in the US. But I was told, uh, after inquiries through the embassy, that uh, there was no official UFO project in, in the US following the closure of Project Blue Book. We did have one or two indications that, notwithstanding the fact that there wasn't a formally constituted project, that, that people were at some level paying attention to this issue, but that may have been on a case-by-case -case basis. But of course, I would find it uh, personally very surprising, particularly 9-11, if, if somebody somewhere in the US administration wasn't looking at the more interesting cases that I, I know you do have involving uh, pilot sightings, radar returns, etc. I think that my combination of security clearance and need to know during that time would have given me access had there been such a thing. Um, and I, I think even if in, in my dealings with the defense intelligence staff, if there had been something like that, I'd like to think that I would have got some hint. But I, I got absolutely no hint. Of course, I can't, I can't prove a negative. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, my colleagues and I in the British government um, were not aware of, of the nature of the UFO phenomenon. We found it interesting, but the bottom line was we, we didn't know what it was. Well, classified, some, some of the more highly classified documents on UFOs, of course, relate not, not to, to extraterrestrial spacecraft, but to, for example, uh, information about the capability of military radar systems, information that would, um, if released, um, uh, show methods and sources of gathering intelligence. What do you think about the Brentwater case as to me? Uh, the Bentwaters case from December 1980, yes, I mean, that's, that's Britain's um, most compelling UFO incident. Uh, the case file on that was the subject of a targeted FOI release actually back in 2001. So the release of that file, uh, which is in the, in the public domain, actually predates the policy decision to open the archive in, in the wider sense. All right. Uh, all right. I think the link will, of course, be available after for additional questions. Thank you very much. Uh, no, uh, it's, uh, it's clear that the pilot sightings are extremely important, and I want to point out that uh, Richard Haynes uh, was instrumental for many years in compiling uh, the largest database of pilot sightings in the world. At one point it was a 3500, Lord knows where it is now. 
he, he worked for NASA for many years. I believe he's retired. I believe that database is now in the hands of NICAR. It's a group that deals with the issue of this phenomena and aerial safety. Very professional operation. Uh, how many they have now, I do not know, but I know that because uh, Dr. Haynes was doing that, many, many, many pilots who could not speak anywhere else would come and give them the report, and they might very well be anonymous in that, but, but they had a place to go and talk. I don't think that Dr. Torres knew that. And so that database is probably, and I feel, very likely the single most profound collection of data confirming the, the, the presence of extraterrestrials because these reports simply do not describe human-based craft in the collective. Uh, but the press has been very reluctant to really go and look at that. But it's there, it's been there for many years, you may want to do that. All right, now I want to bring to the stand a gentleman who is, again, one of the speakers at the X conference uh, uh, who has a new book coming out, he wants to mention that, Richard Dolan. Thank you, Stephen, and good morning. My name is Richard Dolan. I am the author of a study entitled UFOs and the National Security State. I'm happy to announce the publication of the second volume of this three-volume history, which covers the UFO phenomenon from the Second World War to the present day. This new study, subtitled The Cover-Up Exposed, is due for release in the late spring of 2009. It covers the years 1973 to 1991, a period of time spanning from the Nixon administration through the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Using archival sources from the United States and Canadian National Archives, professional journals, and direct investigations and personal interviews that I've conducted, the 600-page study provides a comprehensive analysis of the critical UFO encounters by military and civilians worldwide. These encounters, all thoroughly documented and equally baffling, repeatedly demonstrate that the UFO phenomenon has been a global one and the result of highly advanced technology that has received no official recognition. Now, many of these cases involve the violation of sensitive US military airspace as well as that of other nations. Some of these include the unexplained intrusion over American and Canadian air bases in late 1975, the spectacular interception attempts of a UFO over Tehran in Iran in 1976, an event tracked by American defense satellites, incidentally, the landing of an unknown object near two American-operated air bases in Britain in 1980, the Bentwaters case just referred to, the appearance of large boomerang-shaped craft north of New York City during the 1980s, military records describing attempts to intercept UFOs by the nations of Europe, South America, Africa, Australia, and Asia, the appearance of triangular craft throughout the United States, Europe, and the Soviet Union, including the attempted interception of a triangular aircraft by Belgian F-16s in 1990, and numerous sightings of anomalous objects in Earth orbit by Soviet and American astronauts, in particular those in the shuttle program. This study also presents an analysis of UFO secrecy itself, throwing light on areas that have long operated in darkness. I have tried to analyze the structure of power behind the scenes. I've tried to describe 
black budget and special access programs and how they factor into this. Studying the relationship of military versus corporate secrecy of UFO phenomena. And I have attempted to provide a geopolitical analysis throughout to bring the topic of UFO secrecy into the mainstream of historical understanding. Finally, I am happy to mention that this study provides a first ever analysis of the history of UFO research itself. I've recreated the discussions and debates concerning the topics that polarized UFO research during these years, such as alien abductions, animal mutilations, intelligence community infiltration into UFO research, the controversial MJ-12 documents, the Gulf Breeze controversy, claims about reverse engineering of alien technology, crop circles, and much more. I've also studied the effect of new technologies, such as the internet, on UFO research. I've attempted to provide a thorough and complete <coughs> history of the phenomenon, the secrecy, and the response by researchers who sought to understand this mystery. Behind it all is a backdrop of a world in technological, economic, and political transformation. UFOs in the national security state, the cover-up exposed, is my attempt to take the reader through a fascinating turning point in the history of the UFO phenomenon, as well as the history of the modern world. The book is due for publication in June 2009. I would encourage you to visit my website, keyholepublishing.com, for announcements of publication and availability. Thank you very much. All right, the press releases for uh, the book will be up here. Uh, uh, key press, working press, please, not the attendees, take those. I'm going to do an personal indulgence at this time, since it's appropriate given his book, and to also make an announcement myself. Uh, as of about, oh, I don't know, it's been about 10 days. Uh, uh, Grant Cameron, Canadian researcher, uh, wonderful fellow, good friend, who for the last 11 years has been researching the intersection of this issue and all of the United States presidents back to Roosevelt and it's compiled through many hours in the Presidential Archives and the National Archives, a very substantial dossier regarding that. And I have been in, uh, 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 in a co-authored mode for a number of years, uh, attempting to get th this book published. We attempted to do it in 2003 and were turned, by, turned down by every New York publishing company. As of 10 days ago, uh, we were uh, signed up with Overlook Press in New York, which is run by publishing legend Peter Mayer, former head of Penguin Books and Avon Books. They're very excited. And they will they have uh, offered a uh, full release of the book, which will be US Presidents and UFOs, The Untold Story, probably. Uh, and this will be written by uh, Grant and myself. And it will cover uh, that topic. And the key sections of that book will uh, focus on the Clinton administration and the Carter administration. Uh, there are many people in the book connected to the issue who are living and still involved in public service. Uh, they include Jimmy Carter, Marsha Smith, former President H.W. Bush, former President Clinton, current Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, Governor of New Mexico Bill Richardson, former uh, Head of Transition and former Chief of Staff to Clinton John Podesta, 
Melvin Laird, Sheila Widnall, uh, the former head of the Office of Science Technology Policy, Dr. John Gibbons, and others. We will make every effort to interview these people so that they, one, can provide their own first-hand account of what we are writing about and also to ensure that we get it right. And so we are certainly looking forward to having the opportunity to interview these individuals regarding this subject. I hope that perhaps they are looking forward to it too. I guess we'll know soon enough. Now, I wish to bring forward another speaker from the X conference. He is an exo-political activist and a political activist before that, going back many, many years. He's been involved in multiple projects. He uh, has a Jewish doctor from Yale, currently lives in Canada, and uh, he has a, another initiative he's working on with a number of individuals, and he wants to announce uh, the uh, developments there. Would you come forward? Alfred Weber. <laughs> Press releases on this are going to be up here as well. You can come and get it later. Yes, Steve, thank you very much. I'm Alfred Lambermont Weber of the Institute for Cooperation in Space, and I'm making this statement on behalf of a citizen's initiative uh, led by Ambassador John McDonald of the Institute for Multitrack Diplomacy, who's, who's here with us, as well as Dr. Michael Sala of the Exopolitics Institute, who's with us and Victor Vigiani of Exopolitics Toronto, who's present in the room also. And uh, the headline here is uh, UN General Assembly President and Secretariat Official Ready for Action on the Extraterrestrial Presence. What is needed is one sponsoring UN member nation, one out of 192 current members of the United Nations General Assembly. Um, a senior official in the office of UN General Assembly President Miguel Descoto Brockman of Nicaragua. Uh, President Brockman was the Sandinista Foreign Minister of Nicaragua from 1979 to 1990 and is currently the President of the UN General Assembly. His Chief of Cabinet, Dr. Norman Miranda of Nicaragua, with whom I had the pleasure of speaking for many hours, has confirmed to representatives of a citizen's initiative that the president, UN General Assembly President's Office is ready to move forward in the General Assembly on a resolution calling for implementation of UN General Assembly Decision 33426 of 1978. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the adoption of UN General Assembly Decision 33426, which calls for, quote, and I'm quoting from the decision, the establishment of an agency or department of the United Nations for undertaking, coordinating, and disseminating the results of research into unidentified flying objects, UFOs, and related phenomena. Likewise, Juan Carlos Brandt, uh, the UN Secretariat's UN Chief of Advocacy and Special Events, who coordinated the recent United Nations panel on Battlestar Galactica, you may recall that that was in the news, has stated publicly, quote, if there is one UN member state that would ask for a meeting on extraterrestrials, 
it would take place, end of quote. What is missing so far is a UN member nation to introduce the implementing resolution, implementing uh, the decision taken 30 years ago to establish a UN agency on extraterrestrial issues. Grenada and its uh, forward-looking prime minister, Sir Eric Gary, was instrumental in sponsoring and ensuring the passage of the 1978 decision 33-426. Now, in recent years, UN member nations have begun to unofficially release, as has been stated here, some of the secret files related to unidentified flying objects and extraterrestrial civilizations. These include Mexico in 2004, Brazil in 2005, Canada from 2005 to 2007, France in 2007, the UK Ministry of Defense 2007 to 2009, and Denmark in 2009. So we are officially putting forward a call today for one or more of the 192 UN member nations to come forward and to take up the commitment of the UN General Assembly President and senior officials in the Secretariat to shepherd through the resolution. Thank you. And of course, Alfred will be available afterwards for any questions. The press release is up here. All right, before we move to the last segment of this press conference, I want to bring somebody forward. Uh, Cheryl, would you please come up? This uh, press conference is held after every X conference, which is, yeah, we've had our fifth one. And I think it's important, I wanted to acknowledge somebody. Uh, the host of every one of the X conferences is Miss Cheryl Jones. And the reason I brought her up here is that Ms. Jones what, as a television journalist and former CNN news anchor, one of the early pioneers of women news anchors. And she became interested and knowledgeable about the issue and, did, and, had, and had the courage uh, to uh, look into it and, 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 uh, and measure it. And as a result, became involved and has lent her prestige and her background to us for five years. And I hope we'll continue to do so. Uh, but I wanted you to know about Cheryl. Do you, have, do you want to say a couple minutes? Sure, Please. absolutely. Um, thank you so much <laughs> for being here this morning. And I just want to say and reiterate something you have already heard this morning. And that is that this story is absolutely the most important story of our time. And were it not for the courage of the people that you've heard from this morning, um, we wouldn't be here at this stage. Uh, we've been through times of um, seeing the story being ignored, uh, ridiculed, um, discredited. The experiences that the people that you've heard from have been unbelievable. You've just heard a bit of it this morning. But the courage of the people that you've, you've heard speak, um, what brings them to this day, those stories are, are just unbelievable. And um, we can only imagine not having walked on the moon myself and not having been through the experiences of, of um, the people you've heard from or the stories. I can't even begin to even comprehend what, what they must have, uh, must have experienced. But having been in the television news business myself, I, uh, 
I think I know a little bit about this story, and I know from your presence here this morning as well. And also from this state rule, we can put uh, the way the story is distributed in the past behind it, give it the proper respect and the importance that it deserves, and heed uh, some of the advice of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, and really uh, look at it seriously, study the material, and listen to what's being made available to you. And then thank you. Very quick. Is Jeffrey Jenkins here? Jeffrey, are you here? Okay. Uh, just want to remind uh, 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 Alfred and uh, Dr. Alexander that uh, hopefully he'll be here and we'll be departing at 12 from the airport. Uh, I, I want to mention now, before we bring up the last person, that uh, one of the things that Paradigm Research Group does is um, it publishes a news media archive uh, or news media watch of the mainstream coverage of this issue. And at the ParadigmResearchGroup.org website, you can, if you can plow through the vast amount of material there, you will find the News Media Archive link, and you will go there. Currently, we have 2,800, I forget, 2,300, mainstream, non-paranormal, non-alternative press, English language articles from around the world up there going back to 1947. But what's notable is that starting in 1996, something started, 2006, I'm sorry, something started, something happened. The number of articles we logged in was about 476. Then, using the same resources, the next year they jumped to, uh, I think, it was 176 to 476, and then 2008 to 1200, and in 2009 we were on a page for 2,000 articles on a subject. I read them all, and approximately one in a hundred is what I would call a hit piece or a ridicule piece. Not that anything can't be hit or ridicule. Of course it can. But uh, one in a hundred is quite good now. I can prove that something has happened at the editorial offices of newspapers and television. Uh, they have made decisions that, yes, we will go here. We will look at this. We will interview. We will talk. We will cover everything. Books, conferences, reports, uh, other developments. It's extremely important. I'm very pleased to see the great Fourth Estate coming around. And, and getting into this and doing their job here. I think they will be very richly rewarded for doing that. Now, our last presenter is in the nuts and bolts, right? You had, this is advanced stuff coming up, folks. You had very basic, but incredibly implicative information. Once you get into this, though, you, there's so much. And one of the areas is, of course, evidence, tangible evidence. This gentleman, Dr. Roger Lear is the leading researcher in the world on the removal of alleged implants or artifacts from individuals who believe they have had contact. The number of reports of contact, direct, including abductions, are in the tens and tens of thousands. They are filling the filing cabinets of researchers all over the world. Uh, and I, the numbers could even be at 100,000. Many, many hundreds of these reports have been extensively written up. Many thousands have been investigated. The material that's out there, review it at your leisure. But one of the aspects that is reported all over the world is this concept of implants. Dr. Lear has removed a number of these. 
with the limited resources, he had analyzed them to the best that he could. However, his resources have improved. And recently, an individual, a working engineer who I have met, very fine individual who could not be here because the stress of coming public in a very public fashion was so great that he became physically ill. And the stress included, of course, dissension within the family, which is, of course, a result of the truth embargo. <coughs> Uh, but the doctor will be available <coughs> later time, and one of the uh, 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 an analyst is here. Uh, an uh, implant was removed of extraordinary nature, a breakthrough really. And Dr. Lear is here to tell you about it. Now, we're not he, a, 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 as all of the other speakers that you saw tonight, presenters. He spoke at the X conference at length, an hour and a half. Uh, that the DVD that has been made of that. Um, what he's trying to convey is complex and difficult. There's no time here for a lecture. Uh, so if you want to really get into this, you're going to have to get with him, and you're going to have to spend some time. But to the best that he can, he is going to present the essence of this breakthrough to you today. And then it's up to you to decide whether you think this is news. I have a good hunch you're going to make the right decision. Dr. Lear, come up, and is there anything you need to, uh, for me to help you in terms of setting up the presentation? And he will be accompanied by Alex Moser, one of a number of analysts, high level, that have examined uh, this uh, artifact and uh, derived the information. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. As uh, <coughs> Steve outlined, uh, I'm involved in research in just a very small portion of the field of ufology. And uh, we've made some uh, startling discoveries uh, in the subject of uh, alien abductions. Now, let me uh, preface my remarks by saying if there was anyone present in this room or interested in reporting this information to the public that thinks that what I'm, my remarks are funny, uh, I think you're in the wrong place. Uh, with that being said, I, those of you that have uh, press packets, I uh, refer, refer you to slide number one. The uh, Roper poll, uh, which was done in uh, 2003, indicated that there was approximately 2% of the American population that was involved in alien abductions. Uh, we believe that's a conservative figure, and if you multiply this by the population of the world, we're not talking about tens of thousands, but we're talking about multi-millions of individuals. Some of these, uh, some of these individuals uh, have uh, like uh, memories. Uh, what's been done uh, on the craft, the uh, the objectives of uh, what they can remember. Uh, most of them uh, do not have uh, remember memories. Uh, that are uh, very, very explicit. Some need uh, help with memory, memory retrieval. Uh, what we've done is to uh, set up a, a situation in which we don't allow uh, anyone to uh, undergo a surgical procedure uh, that has had previous uh, hypnosis. And that's uh, just primarily from the fact that we don't need the criticism of a scientific study. However, if the, inf if the information uh, that is retrievable uh, is to be had, uh, we give that person the choice following the surgery procedure, and we refer them to a qualified specialist in that area. 
So uh, today we're going to uh, uh, refer to some uh, new uh, information uh, in a scientific vein only, and I'll try and uh, spoon feed this to you as easily as possible without going into a lot of biological detail. Uh, slide 1A in the press packet uh, will show a picture of uh, what one of these objects uh, looks like. Uh, this is a T-shaped object, uh, which is approximately a, a sonometer in each direction, covered uh, with a very strange biological coating, a coating that is so strong that when the object is freshly removed, you can't cut through it with a surgical blade. Uh, the next slide is uh, slide uh, 1B, and it shows another kind of an object that we removed, another metallic rod, which is also covered with a like, uh, similar uh, dark gray impervious membrane, and uh, this uh, material is also very strong and you can't cut through it with a surgical blade. We have, uh, at the present time, uh, with our 15 surgeries, we have approximately seven of these objects in which you could uh, line them up uh, on a surgical drape, you would not be able to tell one from the other. Uh, next, we'll uh, refer you to slide two. Uh, of the 15 surgeries uh, that have been performed, we have uh, submitted these, not in totality, but in piece, because we haven't had the, the funds to really uh, go into this in a, a full-blown project. Fortunately, I was able to get assistance at one time through the National Institute for Discovery Science, and that was much uh, appreciated. That's uh, Bob Bigelow Enterprise, and I will always be indebted uh, to him for his help with this. Um, now, there are some uh, biological aspects which I have to, uh, to mention at this time. Uh, if you get an object in you, you usually can see where it uh, went in, a portal of entry. Something that's uh, a sonometer um, in various dimensions is a pretty big-sized piece to get inside. You, you should be able to see where this went in. In none of these cases has there been a scar or an opening in the skin. Um, all the uh, individuals who uh, allege uh, uh, have implants uh, are submitted to some uh, rigorous examination before we have anything to do with them. They must produce. They must produce, either on an x-ray or a CAT scan, a viable object which is more radio-dense than the surrounding area. Uh, we see um, when these have been removed and we examine the tissue pathologically as it goes around the area, there has been absolutely no inflammatory or rejection reaction. This is, uh, within our technology, not possible. Uh, the uh, major majority of these uh, objects, as I described, are these uh, small uh, metallic rods uh, covered with this very strange uh, biological coating. And quite recently, uh, we found out that, and I hope you're all sitting down, that this biological coating seems to be growing from the metallic structure within. Uh, we believe that this uh, biological tissue serves as a barrier so that the body does not reject uh, the object or cause inflammation to occur. And as you can see, if we had the funds to back engineer this and find out how this works, it would be a tremendous boon to medical science as we could wrap 
a transplant organ, a pen, a screw, or something of that nature, put it into the body, and the individual would no longer have to take immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their lives. I refer you now to slide three, and uh, unfortunately, we can't do much with this one because there's a small uh, segment, about 30 seconds, of one of the surgical procedures that was uh, performed. We were going to show that to you, but unfortunately, we weren't uh, able to get that uh, facility set up. So uh, in conclusion, uh, in reference to the biological data, uh, we have looked at this in uh, quite in a, a, an exceptional manner, uh, using every bit of science that's our, at our disposal. Our disposal. And uh, we, we see that this looks like it represents a, uh, a science which uh, uh, far exceeds uh, the biological science that we have on Earth. Now, when we get into the metallic portion, uh, I don't feel uh, qualified. Uh, I, I, I had to learn the small uh, amount of metallurgy uh, that I did in order to uh, continue the work. But we're very fortunate today, ladies and gentlemen, to have uh, one of the leading metallurgical sciences with us that's worked on the project, our uh, chief uh, uh, metallurgical science, uh, Dr. Alex Mosier. If I can have you come up here, Alex, and uh, you can take it from here. Well, um, I, my background, so to let you know, is uh, I've got a PhD in physical chemistry. Um, I've got a lot of strength in um, analytical instrumentation analysis, materials analysis. I've designed and, and, and built um, my own instruments from Ramon to uh, page meters and, and, and the like. Um, and, and so um, we had a number of analyses performed, um, both uh, within uh, while the uh, sample was within the body and also uh, outside. Now, I'm going to refer you to the PowerPoint presentation that, that uh, uh, well, kind of looks like this. It's got, I think, a, this is black and white, but uh, it, uh, it has a, uh, you know, two PowerPoint uh, uh, slides per page. And we're starting off at slide nine, and that should be in the press kit. Um, also, let me apologize, the press kit uh, produced, uh, I produced some really awful images I printed them out on a photographic printer, uh, and they didn't seem to come out. I think it was contract issues. Um, and I was planning to get a projector. Um, so uh, we'll be posting on the website if you're interested. Um, we don't have that website just yet, but uh, I'll let you know afterwards. So if we refer to slide 10, um, we can see the, the summary of the analysis performed um, first in, in vivo. That was a radio frequency uh, for uh, determination of electromagnetic um, emission, uh, x-ray for um, object verification, uh, just as Dr. Larry said, and a CAT scan for object location. Um, the in vitro, uh, out, essentially outside the body in controlled conditions, was uh, optical microscopy. And uh, that was just for looking at microscopic appearance and comparing it to, to other uh, similar objects. And uh, also SEMDX, which is scanning electron microscopy, so we can look at the nanoscale nano structures. Um, and also coupled with that is uh, EDX, which is uh, 
energy dispersive uh, X-ray fluorescence spectroscopy, uh, and that's just for elemental analysis uh, down to the sub percent range. Um, we also did Raman, which kind of uh, which looks at the um, vibrational modes of either molecules or crystals, and that's for chemical determination, and also ICT. Um, MS, which is inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry for elemental and hopefully isotopic analysis. So if we go to the next slide, slide 11, um, it just shows the, uh, the results for the electromagnetic analysis. And uh, for, from a uh, gauss meter, um, we saw that uh, the magnetic strength is between 5 and 10 uh, milligauss. And um, with a, radio, a few different radio frequency analyzers, uh, we could see that there, there were radio frequency emissions uh, around the 14.7 uh, uh, megahertz range and also in the gigahertz range uh, at 17.6 uh, gigahertz. Uh, and, and so th this, just show, this just shows that, that there seems to be some unusual emissions. We, we would like to have some more controlled tests, um, but initially this shows that there could be some unusual behavior occurring. If you go to slide 12 uh, with the uh, x-ray, um, the image doesn't show, uh, the object doesn't show very well uh, on these images. Um, uh, and so, uh, again, we'll post these on the website. But you can, you can clearly, well, if you look carefully, uh, you can see that there's an object um, uh, showing uh, right next to the uh, bone, uh, but separated from, from the bone in, in the, in the uh, subject's toe. And uh, the optical microscopy, um, uh, there's essentially three different columns in the press pack. Um, and um, the first column shows the object under low magnification. Um, the second column shows the object under higher magnification. And the last column, um, just for comparison, shows um, um, meteorite fragments. And you can see there's similarities and there's also some differences. Uh, similarities that it has the same uh, color tones, it likely has uh, similar composition and oxides. Uh, the difference, uh, the biggest difference, is that the object taken out, taken out of the subject's um, body um, had uh, some kind of a sheen to it, um, which possibly could be uh, silicon uh, material or some other hard material, hard shell. And, uh, and then if you go to uh, slide 14, uh, you can see the results, at least for the um, scanning electron microscopy. And here again, we've got uh, different columns with different sorts of materials. The first column, the column on the left, you can see that there's, um, this is actually from the object itself, and it shows um, some kind of nanofiber. And um, for comparison, in the middle column, um, you can see that uh, we've got a, a standard image of carbon nanotubes, single wall carbon nanotubes. And there's certainly similarities uh, in, in the scales and length. And then uh, also uh, an, an interesting um, uh, nanocrystal showed up as well, um, which turned out to be um, primarily sodium chloride through E-lex analysis. Um, but the unusual thing, first of all, these things uh, form sodium chloride should have a sort of type of crystal habit, uh, a very cubic crystal habit. Um, sometimes, because of crystal growth reasons, it will be slightly optimized. The unusual thing about these crystals is that they produce an orthorhombic crystal habit, or appears to be an orthorhombic crystal habit, which is unusual for sodium chloride. 
Um, so uh, this speaks of possibly some kind of um, advanced engineering of crystals, um, perhaps for the use of uh, either uh, harvesting energy or creating some kind of resin. Right. And and then supporting that, we have the Raman spectroscopy, uh, which is, shows up on slide 15. And um, we have two graphs here. Um, Raman is, is basically, again, for probing vibrational modes and fingerprinting what type of molecules or crystals you might have uh, in the object. And uh, we've got the, the graph on the uh, left-hand side is, is essentially um, looking at very low vibrational, low, very low energy modes, and the graph on, on the right-hand side actually looks like you probably can't see that. Um, uh, the, the graph on, on the right-hand side shows the higher energy um, uh, um, modes um, within this material. And the interesting thing is um, we compare it with a, a few different um, known materials. Um, one, the, the one with the, the strongest signal is just pure uh, single wall carbon nanotubes. Uh, it's also compared, uh, the object is, is compared against a meteorite um, fragment uh, and also against silicon. And uh, you can see that there's certain bands around uh, a little, little lower than 1600 wave numbers. And um, that, that there's clearly a band there for carbon nanotubes and there's also a small band that shows up in the object as well. Um, and, and that band doesn't appear in a regular known meteorite. Now, um, so, so that supports um, the previous slide, the, the, the previous uh, um, standing electron micrograph, um, that those, those nanofibers um, could be carbon nanotubes. Um, the, the, the correlation um, is, is, uh, is pretty stark. And, and so, uh, again, having uh, uh, something like car um, carbon nanotubes or nanofibers uh, uh, in this sort of object, um, you don't find these things uh, in nature. Um, they have to be somehow processed and they're not easy to make. So, uh, and, and of course, the, the field of carbon nanotubes is, is, is getting to be rather large now. It's, a, it's an area of exploration in, in the sciences. Um, and, uh, and, and so we, we suspect that there's some kind of engineering occurring within this object. Um, the ICT mass spec, the, the uh, mass spectrometry, which also gives some kind of uh, uh, elemental analysis and, and even can offer some kind of isotopic ratio analysis, um, uh, um, also shows some unusual um, data. And uh, essentially, uh, and this is on slide 16, um, because of the presence of gallium, germanium, uh, uh, platinum, ruthenium, rhodium, and iridium uh, in the combination uh, in which these elements show up, uh, it, it, it's typical um, of a meteoric sample. Uh, now, there are many different types of meteors uh, that, that have been analyzed, but, but having that combination and the concentration combinations of those elements uh, indicates that this <coughs> might be a meteoric sample um, or something along those lines. Uh, also, there was a, um, a, a deviation of nickel. Uh, yeah, a deviation of nickel from uh, terrestrial isotopic ratios that the analysis lab couldn't explain. Um, uh, 
and it requires further study. And so um, um, the combination of all these things, if we go to the conclusion, uh, the combination of all this data indicates some kind of unusual uh, or unusual um, uh, engineering uh, within this object. Uh, and uh, elemental analysis indicates it's likely non-terrestrial. Uh, it could be meteoric, uh, possibly it could be something else. The SEM and Raman analysis indicate uh, carbon nanotubes in the object. Uh, to date, carbon nanotubes um, have not been found in meteorites. There's one meteorite that's been analyzed that showed uh, some kind of uh, carbon onion structures or something resembling buckyballs, but nobody's ever found any, anything resembling uh, carbon nanostructures or, or threads or fibers. Uh, so this is unusual in itself. And of course, the electromagnetic emissions indicate possibility of a functional device uh, that may serve to monitor or control. Now, all of this analysis that was performed uh, was performed on a, on a relatively low budget. And you know, to really do a very thorough analysis, we, we need more money to do this work. You have to pay for the analysis itself. Uh, and, and there's many other analysis that we could do that might show some kind of a, a circuitry or some kind of structure similar, similar to a, some kind of an operating circuit. So we need to be able to perform those analysis, pay for those analysis, and go through the, the, uh, the, the whole entire analytical process in a, in a much more thorough manner. I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, you have to stay right there. Do we have any questions at this time about this? He's a very sophisticated guy. Tom Ballone is a very sophisticated guy. <laughs> It, it, you're right. I mean, we, we really don't know. Um, it certainly could be, and it would make sense. I mean, to power a device uh, over the long term requires some kind of energy harvesting, and there's plenty of energy sources within the body itself, uh, either uh, thermal, vibrational, electromagnetics as well. Not, not, not in, not in a, in a, uh, a fashion that was controlled to my level. You have to have it in a, within a Faraday cage and, and think very carefully. Very likely it is non-terrestrial. Um, I'm within 95% sure. And whether it's a device or not, um, I would say the electromagnetic emissions um, indicate that also there's about a 90% chance that it's a functional device. But we really need to do a lot more work. So you're consistent with oh yeah, yeah, you're, absolutely. You're 90%, 90%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <coughs>
phenomena uh, involves uh, in linear time varying amounts of time. Now I've, I've studied these cases uh, over a period of number of years and as you know the Travis Walton case is a case in which the individual was uh, taking a mortar craft and it was days later before he was returned in linear time. Uh, however uh, many abductees will report that there is seemingly no time differential between the time they are taken and the time they were returned. There are other things about the phenomena which uh, require uh, a lot more study and uh, better uh, understanding through earthly science. Uh, the reports by individuals who are on a craft uh, may see things that are disproportionate uh, to what we see as far as even in linear measurement. A craft from the outside may look like it's one dimension. On the inside, it can look like it's the 10 to 15 times the size. So uh, to, to get to answer your question, uh, as in linear time, uh, that's the, the best example I can give. It's either from zero uh, to the long, longest known case is about seven days. That, that's true because uh, the average abduction case, uh, they're not gone for seven days. And the Travis Walton case was a rather unusual case, which I won't go into, but the family and the uh, police department of uh, Snowflake, Arizona were looking for this man. Uh, he was uh, a forester and uh, he was with a crew and the crew had been uh, taken in and accused of kidnapping and murder. So uh, this, this is not not typical of an ordinary abduction case. Uh, we're, we're kind of short. We need more. The, the abduction phenomenon is vast. The resources are enormous. We could go out and spend many weeks reading it. If we got the question, who did you plan extraordinary citizens? Any questions there? Any more? Okay, would you go ahead and sit down, please? Thank you so much, Alan. I will add this that uh, tens of thousands and thousands of reports are coming out. Many of them involve implants. Many of these have been uh, analyzed. Uh, they come from the navel cavities, other parts of the brain, uh, earlobes, arms, and what have you. It's extraordinary physical evidence. I, I point this out not because I believe it's necessary to confirm ET presence. That's been proven many times over. In fact, it was proven by 1952. But there are people who 
like that physical stuff. They, they want to see that. Well, there it is. So one can look into this at their, at their leisure. Uh, Dr. Learwood and, and, and Alex will be available afterwards. All right, and you can question them then. Now, I'm going to bring this now to a close. Some housekeeping things very quickly. Uh, uh, Alfred and uh, Dr. Alexander, your ride will be waiting for you at 12, directly downstairs. We want to get downstairs, out to 14th Street entrance, about 5 of 12, and you'll be gone. Jeffrey Jenkins, all right? Secondly, all speakers and activists connected to PRG and special PRG guests uh, are to meet in the Fourth Estate restaurant for a working lunch for the next few hours. Uh, you can go in really any time. They're kind of set up, but we'll get underway around 12. Um, again, finish. This is the Paradigm Research Group press conference after the X Conference 2009 held at the Hilton Gaithersburg. It will be held again in April of 2010. I believe, as I've said publicly on many, many radio and television programs, that the Obama administration, through the nature of who they have appointed and other indications and other information I'm receiving, has made a decision to disclose the ET presence. But that is, of course, an assessment. They are certainly not saying anything. Right? However, the window of opportunity is very, very wide. We are encouraging the administration, which has dedicated itself to open and transparent government, to commit the ultimate act of openness and transparency, and to do it immediately before this truth embargo becomes its embargo, and it has to explain its reason for delay at a critical time in the human race's uh, how would you say, development on multiple fronts. If it does not disclose, by the end of May, this is not a threat, <laughs> don't threaten the United States government, they're heading on. But first 100 days plus 30, because I have to admit this gentleman came into a rather extensive array of very profound problems. So we'll provide an additional 30 days. If disclosure is not taking place, PRG has enormous, has a substantial network and quite a bit of documentary evidence uh, connected to this, particularly politically, particularly through the Rockefeller Initiative and Clinton Administration, and we are going to be extensively putting that out through the media. And we're just going to make it as difficult on them as possible. We don't want to, but sometimes that's necessary. And finally, if they choose not to disclose, by the end of May and wait. Maybe they want June, maybe July, or whenever it's convenient. There is a very real possibility, I believe above 50-50, that another nation will in fact act preemptively, not preemptively, proactively on their own and disclose the extraterrestrial presence. And they will wake up and they will pick up the Washington Post or the Washington Times and the headline will read, President Sarkozy of France today will tell the French people about the confirmation of an extraterrestrial presence and provide evidence from the French military file. And we will follow and they will leave. That's what's at issue today. I think it's a pretty big issue. We're getting a lot of calls for Dr. Mitchell to appear on some very fine shows. That may not be possible right away. He has some substantial demands on his time. But believe me, he wants to do those shows and we will do everything we can to service those requests. But I hope those requests will keep coming in after this is maybe just a touch out of the, out of the uh, news cycle. I thank you so much for coming today.
We look forward to uh, perhaps another press conference, maybe after disclosure in April of 2010. Thank you. We have press releases up here for Alfred Weber and for Richard Dolan.